Welcome to Breakfast with Bob Singh. Yeah. It's a pleasure having you on this rainy mid-autumn day in Hong Kong. Um, Christina, you don't need any introduction really in Hong Kong. Um, you've been socially active and politically active and environmentally active, serving Hong Kong for so long. Um, I first got to hear about you in my very early days in Hong Kong, 93, 94. Back then you were part of the Legislative Council, you were a Legislative Councillor, I think you started in 1992? That's correct. And then you served until 2000? 2000. Right. And you're also a founding member of Civic Exchange, Citizens Party, um, your co-chair of Friends of the Earth, back at then, at one time, um, and you're a published author, and recently you were the Undersecretary for the Environment um, in the Hong Kong government, until July 2017. And I do want to talk about your books because I, 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 haven't, I haven't read them, but I'm, I'm aware of them and I've read the introduction. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. And above all, you're a big inspiration to me and how, what you stand for and how you stand for things and how you navigate the minefields. It's, it's very admirable. Well, you're very kind and generous. You're welcome. Now, where to begin, I don't know, but perhaps let me start by beginning. What was your Eureka moment, your moment that really inspired you and perhaps woke you up to serving humanity? I don't think I ever looked at um, what I can do and who I am in such a grand way. Um, over time, I found that I was given an opportunity to do public things. And I recognize that the public realm is different from your own private realm. Because you're not just doing something for yourself. You're doing something that has a tremendous impact on other people. Therefore, you can't just look at yourself, what you think, but you have to consider something that is much wider and bigger than yourself. So I think that put me on a different kind of mindset. The second thing was, um, when I became a member of the legislature, you could say that was a really big moment, that I wasn't a member of a non-profit organization, uh, an advocacy group, or a kind of do-gooder organization. I was really uh, in politics where the decisions have an impact on everybody. In the defense, right? Well, I felt the pressure of responsibility. And I also felt greatly that I didn't know everything. I mean, my God, in fact, I knew so little. Because you're not just, as I said, thinking about what is good for you or what you think personally about something. Because every time you vote for something or you articulate something, you promote something, it has a much wider impact. So first of all, it was a tremendous learning journey. Secondly is I always thought I need to think more deeply or, you know, my gut reaction or something I didn't like, I need to ask myself again, is it just me and my own assumption? 
or is there a better way? So you could say it was a kind of long drawn out eureka moment, but the moment was driven by the responsibility. And was there a particular person around you who had a big influence on you, an author or some writer or visionary or artist? Oh, definitely. Um, but this person influenced my life uh, way before I got into yes. public service. Yes. Um, he, he was a Catholic priest. Uh, he, his name is Laszlo Ladani. He was a Sinologist. Very interesting background. Uh, he went from Europe. He, he was a Catholic priest. He ended up in China. He became a China specialist. Then he came to Hong Kong. He was attached to one of the colleges at Hong Kong University. And you met him. And I met him. Well, actually, somebody introduced uh, him to me through his writing. And I thought, wow, this is just uh, another order of magnitude at a time when China was a closed society. Yes. And this person was writing deeply about what was happening in China at the moment. Not just history, which he knew a lot when about. When was he writing? 70s? 70s and 80s. And in the early 80s, I was introduced to his penultimate last piece of writing. He wrote a newsletter called China News Analysis, which was uh, famous among Sinologists. Did he write in English? Or he wrote in English. English. Um, and I contacted him at, at uh, uh, Ritchie Hall uh, in Hong Kong University. And I wrote to him because, you know, I didn't have his phone number. And I wrote to him. You didn't send him an email? No, no emails in those days. So I wrote to him and I said, you know, I'm a relatively young person. I'm interested in China. I've I read what you wrote. I'd like to learn more. May I get in touch? And then I wrote my address and my phone number. He called one number. So I, I then went to see him. And really, I learned from him. And what? inspired me about him was he was a deeply spiritual person. He was a man of God, but he was also an intellectual. Yes. So I saw in one person someone very, very clever, very, very learned, with full uh, critical faculties, but yet at the same time, he had the spiritual dimension. This was a person that combined these two things. Yes. And, you know, I, I, I just held that vision in, in my mind all the time. A complete man. Complete person. And was he everything you'd expected and everything you'd anticipated the time you spent with him? I spent too little time with him. Have you passed away? Have you moved passed down? Away, passed away, yes. Passed away Here in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, some years ago. The name rings a bell. Yeah. Yeah. The last Lola Dani, yeah. very, very well known amongst China's followers. Yeah. So you could say he was perhaps a pivotal turning point? Pivotal that you could have in one person, someone very critical in an intellectual sense, but someone who was empathetic, who was generous, who was kind, who believed in God, who was spiritual, the who was tolerant, all in one person. The yin and the yang. Beautiful. I, I often... Um, ask people to, to inspire other people, who inspired them, right? 
and I've been fascinated by this for a long, long time. I was deeply inspired by William Blake, the poet, the painter, the artist, the visionary. So then the question comes up, well, who inspired him? And then you go back and you research, and then you find out that he was inspired by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was credited with starting the Romantic movement. Yes. Well, who was Jean-Jacques Rousseau inspired by? It's a beautiful lineage, what you call the perennial wisdom. It's been around forever. And then you go back to the 1400s, and then the 1300s, and then you go back to the ancient Romans and the Greeks, and then you end up in ancient China, Lao Tzu. Well, that's why it is still reading and admiring these people. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm heavily influenced by Lao Tzu and the I Ching that you see here, yes. and those teachings, because they ring true today more than ever. Yeah, nice one. And um, I don't know where to begin with, but before we talk about your new book, which I can't wait to read, by the way. As a woman, as a beautiful woman, I've always admired your beauty and your poise and how you stand and how you keep yourself in this society. As a woman in perhaps what was more of a man's world back then, maybe still is to some extent, how have you found navigating and pushing forward what you believe in? I think we were very fortunate, or I was very fortunate, to have my, uh, my professional side in Hong Kong. And during my uh, childhood and adolescence, there were enough examples of working women who did well, that gave me a picture that women can do things. So I think that was very important. And I looked at my mother, I looked at her sisters and her friends, uh, because, you know, those were the people you saw when you were young. You didn't necessarily look out and see uh, the, the wider world no. because we were too young at the time. But I saw my mother, you know, dressing well every day and going to work. So that became the default that one day I too could go to work. Then um, secondly, is like, in a way, my mother's generation kind of beat down the door for, for women here. Yeah. And it really was for us to kind of go and keep going, you know, open more doors. Um, I, I never felt I had to be different, you know, be more like a man. Uh, and I also had an experience in, in a way, my first real job as a commodities trader. But there were advantages in being a woman. And actually, you didn't have to be uh, spending time with the boys. You know, men like to gather after work and have a drink and shoot the crap, so to speak. Yeah, right? yeah. They, they have a certain men talk. Yes. And I decided early on in my career when I was working for this particular company that I didn't want to do that. And actually, the boys didn't really want me there either because then they were much more constrained. So Are you one of the few women in commodities trading? The only trading? one. Oh, the only wow. one at the time in, in at least my company. There, actually, there were very, very few women. And, but I also found that on a more one-to-one -one basis, they were quite happy to open up and talk about their girlfriends and uh, they, because we were working in the same company, we could share their individual anxieties and concern about things in the company. Uh, and, you know, so I felt that was yes. very human. Yes, right? yes. Very human. Uh, 
and it was all right. And I think because I was quite good at my job, I had their respect. I mean, you know, I wasn't a freeloader. No. I was as good as they were when it came to work. And we had a nice personal relationship. Oh. And you, they probably opened up to some secrets as well. Well, might I might have given you an edge. I mean, I knew them. I knew them as human beings. Yes. And the competition was different. Uh, We're talking eighties, right? Uh, yes, that's right. The 80s, that's yes. right. I mean, obviously, we were competing with yes. each other, so to speak. Uh, but. I, I guess I, I was lucky. I mean, it was quite good for the company to have a woman there as well. And because I did, I, I think the main thing was I did my job well enough yes. that nobody could criticize me for for that. Yes. And my relationship with each one of them was really quite good. Nice. Back in the day, right? Back in the day. Yeah. Of course, you, you come from a successful uh, business, if you like, a background, right? Which was probably a stepping stone for you to enter the government in, in the early 90s. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Not, no. not really the business side. But the business side is an experience. Um, so how were you headhunted, so to speak? Or who tapped you on the shoulder? Um, well, I know exactly who, who, who did that. Um, uh, David Ford, who was at the time um, uh, the chief secretary. So this was when Chris Patton arrived in Hong Kong, and obviously this was the last five years. Yes. And the reason that I guess they kept my shoulder was because I already had uh, uh, some exposure in Hong Kong on public issues. Right. So my life was, you know, my daytime job was doing commodities trading, and my nighttime interest was with a group of people in Hong Kong from, you know, different different uh, backgrounds who were interested in public issues. Mm. And that group was called Hong Kong Observers, and I was right. an active member. That, right. that was how I was noticed. Right. So obviously, during the final years of British rule, they were looking for younger people who would support more democracy, or yes. you know, the, the, the early phase of introducing some yes. element of democracy yes. in Hong Kong. So, so I guess that's why they tapped my shoulder. Mm. Democracy is something you care deeply about, but also you were fascinated, maybe still are fascinated, by the uh, Communist Party mm -hmm. in yep. China. Yes. And your earlier, one of your earlier books, The Underground Front. Yes. Um, I, I read the introduction. Fascinating. Um, so now I, you were you were inspired by communists like so many of us, right? But the writings of Marx and Hegel before him, right? And that that chain, so that truly inspired you, right? Yeah. Well, um, when I was at university, I read very widely, and Marxism, uh, socialism, the socialist movement in Europe was uh, very interesting and inspiring history. Yes. And I associated that with where I came from, which was Hong Kong, and China. Um, so China was going through Maoism, um, and being in Hong Kong, and I was probably one of the few people that would go and watch leftist movies uh, during the summer holidays, because it was different. Yes. I, I mean, I was truly fascinated. Yes. So, I mean I, I mean, I was always interested in the isms and how they came about and what they really were about. And, you know, a lot of the isms have values and ideals behind it. 
and of course when you roll it out and actually practice it, okay, you know, you have to make all kinds of compromises and it's very difficult. Uh, but you know, the idea of socialism, communism, and Marxism, I mean, you know, Marx wrote such tremendous stuff. And he was a he was an observer of capitalism. And that's you know, he, he probably still remains to be the most acute observer of the consequence of capitalism. Yes, yes, so in fact, a little secret, um, I reread Marx from time to time. Good for you. <laughs> Because that is that is an insight very few people know. Because they're all communists, communism was put into one package and discarded, right? Yeah, so we but the reality, up. there were deep insights, especially coming from Marx, right? And, yeah. You know, growing up in Hong Kong and, and studying in England in the West, socialism and Marxism was bad. Yeah. Capitalism was good. And four legged bird, two legged bird. Do you know what I mean? Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is this is this is the background yeah. in which we grew up, and then of course coming back to Hong Kong, you know, believing in liberal democracy, but watching China and how it struggled in the last forty years to do what it has done, and then frankly today, liberal democracy is in a bit of a problem. Um, how do we go forward? I mean, I get the sense very strongly that for the next generation, particularly for younger people, yes. this notion of isms, right, or this notion of non-isms, I mean, practically, how do you advance uh, the human condition? What kind of political system do we need? Or how do we solve problems? Yes. Um, that is a very major issue going yes. forward. So that's what I'm interested in and today. This is the subject of your latest book, yes. No Third Person. No Third Person. Which is, is published on October the 1st. Yes. So it's National Day, very it's, soon. It's, it's coming. And I feel that Hong Kong, we also need to settle in our own minds our relationship with China. Yes. And we have to accept China today as what it is. Yes. And how can then we, well, once you do that, you accept it for what it is, that we're part of one country, I think then we can talk about betterment. And it's about national betterment and what role we can play. But in a way, you have to declare your acceptance. You have to declare your loyalty uh, to, to China. Yes. And then think about how to make it better. Yes. So it's almost like getting the foundations right because the foundations have shifted over right. the last couple of decades right. and they are what they are today and your new new book is the Hong Kong story right it's a Hong Kong story I haven't read it because it's not out yet but it's a narrative that's very important to the young ones yes I right? think so now I was down at the umbrella revolution the yellow umbrella revolution that's my yes. umbrella yes. the original one from back then and I was very inspired because I saw youngsters who could strum two chords on the guitar. Yeah. They were Bob Dylan. Yeah. Yeah. An yeah. artist who could do two strokes on the wall was suddenly Banksy. Yeah. And I was fascinated. And you know, we just around the corner, and we were sending you know mana food down to the, to yeah. the students and hanging out with them. And I, I was trying not to get involved from a political stance, but from a humanitarian stance. And I saw a cultural revolution. I saw a cultural awakening, a new Hong Kong identity emerging that was creative, yes. that wasn't necessarily political, 
Yes. And I think that was a very successful revolution, yeah. if we call it a revolution. Well, my own sense is, it's good that young people were interested. Yeah. And that's that's the starting point. Yes. Young people are interested, they seem a bit uh, anxious and dispirited right now, and I'm concerned that we can talk ourselves in Hong Kong to death, and we forget that there's a role that we can play. Yes. And the role does not have to be confrontational or fearful all the time. We have to look at China for what it is, and we have to look at ourselves, and we have to ask ourselves some deep questions. And how, how can we navigate this non-rejection of China with how we can build something here that could be a part of national betterment? Um, we need to ready ourselves for a different kind of uh, 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 empathy and sense to do that. Yes. Because otherwise, I think we're going to continue to be stuck. And that's really what my new book is about. Yes. We don't want to be stuck in the past, do we? We don't. We yes. want to move dynamically with a strong identity of who we are and the role we can play. And I say we, but not even Chinese, but I've been here so long now, and this is my home, you know, yes. my chosen home. Yes. I try and serve Hong Kong as well, yes. in the best way I can. So, I, I totally concur with you, and I think we have to be holistic in our thinking. We live in a different world now. China's changing all the time. Yeah. Hong Kong has changed. But at the same time, we have this budding young energy which is creative yeah. and cultural yeah. and ha has its own identity. Yeah. So I hope your book is going to be widely read. Is it going to be published in Chinese as well? I hope so. Uh, after the English version is out, because yeah. I, I write in, in write much better in English than I could write in Chinese. Do you think in Chinese? Uh, it, I think this is how it works. On my own, uh, I think in English. However, I almost feel I go into a, a, an altered state when I'm in a Chinese environment and I am speaking Chinese. Yes. Um, particularly when I'm speaking Mandarin. Of course, it's a much more conscious effort than for me to speak Cantonese, right. and it's more formal. Yes. Um, it, it's interesting to me as well, but, yes. but I don't think it's unique because you know, for people who are bilingual or multilingual, people know that yes. we have all these different personas yes. where we're absorbed into yes. the culture and the language yes. of of the language and yes. the culture itself. Understood. Um, I'm, I'm trilingual and I know other, other languages as well, so I know if yeah. I'm speaking in another language, it's not so much that your personality changes, yes. it's more just like your character changes, right? Well, we're A more sensitive, yeah. you know, you're, you're then sensitive to that culture. Yeah. And, you know, I learned this, um, I, I, I guess, many years ago when I was younger. You can still say what you want. So it's not about censoring yourself, yeah. but you may say it very differently. Understood. Because you want to communicate in that different cultural and lingual, uh, linguistic. Almost like you become a better human being because there's another side to you that comes out that is very comfortable in that other culture and you kind of know their ways. 
but then you can flip back to this culture and know their ways. Well, that's almost like we're multi-dimensional beings, right? That's why I'm very keen for yeah. young people to learn more languages, more dialects. You know, it's a, it's such a privilege to be able to enter into different milieus of yes. culture and experience. And do you find public speaking also gives you that edge? Like when I get a microphone, I also transform into another side of my personality that's perhaps more articulate, more clear, more direct, more diplomatic. Oh, well, uh, yes, and, and on the occasion, uh, a part of my, my public life is addressing the public at large on yeah. formal occasion. And I think it is important to be able to think through that actually this is all written down for posterity. Yes. Do I have something meaningful to add? Yes. Actually, if you don't sit down. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Perhaps when you write a book, it's the same, right? Absolutely. You're very conscious that everything you're putting down on paper yeah. is there yeah. as, a, as a record, right? I think writing really, you know, I mean, our teachers have always told us writing is very exacting. And, but it demands that you are exact yourself. Um, writing succinctly, and you know, have you got your, your thoughts well organized? It's very, very good training for anybody. I don't like the editing part. Um, I'm not an editor, but I love to write. Yes. I love to write. I like to do both. Uh, well, actually, how should I put it? You know, I don't really like to do editing. But having run a think tank, yes. I've had to do quite a lot of reading of the work of others. Yes. And uh, uh, ask or clarify, you know, talking to the author about clarifying thought and helping with editing. So I've done a lot of that. Yes. And, and I really appreciate good editors. They help you to articulate and think better. Well, they, they, it's like a good producer, right? Absolutely. Or a good director. Yeah. They can completely transform yeah. the subject. Yeah. Now, yeah, I mean, you've been in public service for over 30 years, right? Directly. Uh, you know, and uh, I, I'd love to talk about your background as well. And, you know, you, you straddle both cultures beautifully in the West East. But what are your favorite moments, if any, where you went, yes, in the last 30 years of, of being a change maker? Well, there were a number of, um, well, there are those big moments that are kind of public. Yes. And then, of course, there are private moments. The state that I love to be in is, uh, well, usually talk from friends and be, being happy and silly and I mean, silly in the sense that we're, we really enjoy our time together. Yeah. But we yeah. just enjoy each other. And we can we can be ourselves and we can reminisce. And, and that, now that I'm, you know, I'm much older, uh, you've lived life. And there were there are many fellow travelers, you know, old school friends, old colleagues, and so on. And they have traveled with you for a specific period. And no one else can travel with you on those journeys. So when we get together with our different groups of friends, it's just magical. Now, the public moment, I mean, of course, yeah. winning elections, uh, uh, it's an amazing feeling. It's because 
tens of thousands of people, but they're trusted. Yes. I don't think you could kind of have a higher, higher sense uh, of uh, you know feeling good. Unless you're a rock star on stage and there's hundred thousand people. Well, well, that's right. That's the other one. That, 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 that's right. So, yeah. um, so those were very significant moments. And in public life, in political life, it is about getting some things done. And when I've managed to get something done, either very publicly or privately, you know, that's going to say, well, that's yeah. good. Yeah. And you did win an election, or both elections, yeah. quite comfortably, right? Yeah. Over yeah. 60%, right? Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I think we can go with that. Were there any, perhaps, policies that you pushed through? I know you're involved with the Society for the Protection of the Harbour, and you were involved in yeah. yeah? That must have been quite something, That right? was great. That was very important, very public, you know, it's enduring. But there was actually another piece of legislation uh, which I worked on and was successful, and it was really amending uh, the uh, anti-corruption legislation in Hong Kong. Uh, it was really changing a little bit of the law uh, to allow actually greater freedom of reporting. Uh, those moments were very special because, um, because it involved a lot of give and take and actually in the end uh, the government disagreed, right? they, 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 they took a more conservative approach. Uh, but in the legislature we won, but it wasn't one of those where the government couldn't accept it. Uh, and afterwards, both myself and you know the colleagues on the government side, we came together again and acknowledged that, that you know that 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 was a good thing for yeah. Hong So those were very special moments that I I treasure and remember. Right. And as Under Secretary of the Environment recently, I mean that was just a year ago, right? Um, did you enjoy that role? I did. Yeah. Um, I, I did in the sense that I was in a position where I could navigate and where we could get something done. Yeah. Uh, not the day-to-day of you know having a title, but really the opportunity to get something done. So one of the things that I know you know you 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 would be particularly uh, happy about is. Um, and that that got done, uh, and, and I, I played a, a, an important role in yeah. that, uh, where I saw the opportunity, China was going to move, and looking back today, it was a moment where the U.S. government and the Chinese government could agree on something. You know, that was also the time of the Paris Agreement on climate change. There was a moment in time where the U.S. and China were willing to work together on yes. things they could agree, yes. which really helped the world. Yes. Uh, and I agree was one of them, and I thought, you know, Wonderful. let's walk into that door. Wonderful. And it must have been a, a tough position to be in as well, right? Because, you know, you, you, you care deeply about the environment, as, as your record shows, and as we've known each other over the years. But also, you're a public servant, right? So you have to be careful how you stand and how you maneuver. And yeah, I admire that. It's something I hope I don't find myself in that position, because I'm a free spirit and I, um, you know, you know how it goes. But do you remember when we 
we did save the human, don't eat the planet. Yeah. That small infomentary, and you were you were on it, and you yeah. were saying, um, you know, the amount of carbon that's emitted by the meat and dairy industry is 18 percent, while the transport was only 13 percent back then. Did you ever watch that? That small small infomentary. Don't remember right now. It's only six and a half yeah, minutes. We flicked it onto okay, YouTube, okay. and this was 2008, 2009. Oh, okay. And the message was reduce your consumption yes. of meat, fish, and yeah. dairy yeah. for the environment. Yeah. Of course, now it's a hot topic. Right. But back right. then, it was seen as a pink elephant. Yeah. And I remember you, you, you immediately said yes, and we went up the road from your office, oh, that's right. Civic yes. Exchange. Yes, that's right. I think that's we just right. went up Albert Knot Road there yes. in the park, and we filmed you just you know one minute. Yes, I, I now remember. And I did see it, but, you know, thought yeah. that was already 10 years ago. I, so I can't quite remember, but I did watch it. But that little infomentary, yes. which was called Save the Human, as yes. opposed yes. to Saving the Planet. Yes, now I remember. Went on to win Best Documentary at really? the Hong Kong Film Festival. Not bad, I I know. Oh like someone nominated it, it went in, and next thing you know, we've won. And Will Lau, the director who helped me do it, said, Bobsy, I've been directing for like decades, I've never won anything. And now we come along and we do this little thing and we win an award, so he was very happy. But it was pivotal. It led to the whole idea of Green Monday, uh, the whole movement yeah. of getting schools in yes, yes, yes. It was timely. Yes. Now, of course, it's a very, very important message. And in Mana, we say diet change, not climate change. This is a, a main um, voice that we're voicing right now. But the beauty is the young generation are getting it. Yes. The millennials and the Gen Z, they're like, We can eat a lot less meat. And also a lot of them are saying, well, I don't want to eat any. I want to be vegan. So we're getting young girls coming into Mana. Always the girls. They always lead the way. And I want to talk to you about that point. Saying, you know, I'm vegan, I'm proud. And they're doing it for moral and ethical reasons, for principles and values. Talking of girls, now, I believe that the world is undergoing a shift in consciousness, a transformation, where our worldview is shifting from a materialism worldview, an outdated paradigm, into an emerging consciousness worldview, a consciousness paradigm. And the role of the feminine in this is very, very important, because we've been living in a masculine-dominated paradigm for thousands of years. So I wonder if you can reflect on that, or do you, you sense this movement, this awakening? Um, I do think that people are hooking into a different range of things uh, than before. Now, it may partly be that the societies and the countries that, that we're in yes. um, have, have advanced beyond Dire poverty. Yes. Um, and we are, and and I think the environment, climate change, these are real things that are impacting our consciousness. And what do you do about it? And it is about how we see ourselves and how we behave and what we don't do anymore. Yes. Because that's going to create further harm. Um, young people find it much easier to absorb that. I think mostly because 
for you, you know for maybe two or three decades now. Decades, yeah. Young people going through school yes. at least have the one on one of uh, environmental consciousness, equal opportunity. Uh, you know, they're these, born into it, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they no longer question whether it is right or wrong. They want to say that's part of me. Yes. And, and that's very helpful. Now, it's also one of the my, my, my sense that they can be consumers, but those who are in power gotta make make sure that they don't excuse themselves by saying, well, the young will deal with this. Yes. Because if you are able to make decisions today, then try and make the best right decisions that yes. you can. We, we are time sensitive, aren't we? I mean, we, we're aware that the oceans are depleted rapidly, right? Deforestation, groundwater pollution, climate change, etc. So it's no longer a question of, you know, let's pass the buck or let's defer this to the next political party. We can't. And this is where I, I see a strong awakening amongst the youngsters. Yes. They're, they're empowering themselves and also realizing perhaps that they are inheriting this global warming planet. Yes. Which is very different to our generation perhaps, where we always had time. Now the young ones, I don't think they have the privilege of time that we have, but nevertheless, um, the baton has been passed on, I think. Yep. And I think they're running, and they're running beautifully. Yep. So they're going to run faster, and they're going to maybe do things that we don't expect today, or how they're going to do it. Uh, they have a different sense about technology. Uh, the uh, whole idea of sharing things rather than owning things. And I think even in Hong Kong and uh, mainland China, where people have gotten rich very quickly, they've quickly gone into the consumption end. And I think people do realize after you spend a lot of money consuming that you're not any not necessarily happier. You know, you've solved the basic poverty problem. But to be fulfilled is not about consuming more and more material things. No, it's not. And I think this is shown today through books and documentaries and documentaries. I think it's out there in the public consciousness, if you like, that materialism or material wealth does not equate well-being, yeah. peace of mind, and happiness. And I think this is something that we can do in our work today to make it easier for the young ones, so they don't have to burn all their dead fingers to realize fire burns, right? Um, now, before we end this lovely chat, any chance of you becoming a chief executive? Oh, gosh, no. Come on. No, no, no. I mean, it's not what I want to do, and it's, I'm not on that trajectory. I'll give you another coffee. <laughs> um, at this stage of my life, I want to spend more time with my family, my daughter in particular, who's 13 years old. That's 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 very important to me. Um, and I I want I don't have any uh, I don't have anything I want to build. So I'm not looking for another career. I'm not looking to build some some kind of organization. So what I'd like to do is you know the connections, the skills, and the knowledge that I have. If I could be helping others 
there are younger people, there are different people, you know, there are many people out there who have inspirational ideas, you know, who are yeah. doing good. They yeah. do whatever they're doing. And if I can assist them in doing what they want to do, then I'm perfectly happy with that. Perhaps now, right? Because what about in 10 years' time? You'd never say no, would you? No, in 10 years' time... Once your daughter's I'll, in her 20s... But I'll be, I'll be at another stage in my life. Yes. Um, and I, I kind of think the trajectory that I'm on right now, uh, it's really not the political trajectory, although I'm very interested in politics. And, because politics, to me, is not about... You know, it's not a zero-sum game. Politics, to me, this is the people's business. Yes. And we should dedicate ourselves to the people's yes. business to make it better. Yes. So that, that, that's, that's what I want to do, to help others to build that. And you know, young people have a different mindset, they have a different sensibility. Why not for me to see how I can engage that rather than do something of my yes. own? Yes, yes. Understood. Nevertheless, I, I think you could be in a position one day down the line, when the time is right. No, not at all. You'd make a wonderful leader. You'd get so much support. No, definitely not. Well, cool, by that. All right, understood. I don't blame you. I mean, you know. Well, Christine, it's been lovely chatting with you. Thank you. And I uh, hope the rain didn't uh, dominate our conversation too much. Make it a bit cozy and... And um, yeah, I'm glad you've come up to this neck of the woods, to our small cafe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And you live not too far from here. Not far from here. So anytime you want a, a moment of clarity, please come up, bring your laptop, your new notebook, whatever. It's very quiet in the morning. Yeah. We open at day. You can find your own refuge here. Thank you. Away from the bus and the bustle. Thank you. Thank you, Christine.